Last week, I saw a tweet from an account called Bob Ball PDX. And I don't know much about that account. And I don't know that I'd even seen it before. It's probably a reflection more of me using Twitter a little bit less lately. Not quite as plugged in as I once was. But this guy seems to have around 5,000 followers. He's got a blue check so we can post one of these longer tweets that, you know, if you are on Twitter, you've seen these kind of tweets recently. They're presentational kind of wall of text. They've got a photo, almost like a Facebook post, like something you might see there. But this tweet caught my eye because it was about a man named Andy Gardner, who I have found fascinating for a little while now. And this post had a photo of Gardner. Gardner's around 50 years old, good looking guy, salt and pepper hair, mustache, goatee. In the picture, he's wearing an unbuttoned blue collared shirt, a blue jacket. And the caption next to him said, the most pissed off guy in golf. Now, with all this stuff, I want you to take it with whatever grain of salt you need to take it with. But I'm going to read you some of this tweet from Bod Ball, both because it offers a little background on Gardner and maybe gives us some material to pursue here, whether it's to confirm it, to disagree with it, whatever. But Ball writes, quote, Andy Gardner has to be thinking to himself, what the hell did I do wrong? He came up with the idea for the Premier Golf League, the PGL, which is essentially the same thing as Live Golf. He was the first person that really pushed the idea of teams and saw the vision of creating billions, $10 billion in this case, of dollars in value. Gardner's plan was to have 18 54-hole tournaments with 48 players. Players were going to share in the ownership of PGL. Everything now that we slowly see coming to fruition was his idea. The Saudis and American backers were at the table, but for some reason the Saudis pulled out as well as other backers eventually. Interestingly, Colin Neville, the guy that Tiger has brought in to watch out for the players in the current negotiations, was a big supporter and involved in PGL. Gardner keeps coming to mind as I see his vision unfold, and I keep thinking to myself that he must be shaking his head. I wonder what strategic moves left him vulnerable and who he must have turned off and why. In the epic changes coming to golf, there will be winners and losers, but this guy must have a special category of a combination of both wins, the idea, and losses, no money. In business, be careful and game it all out. End quote. So you get the concept there. The guy who has this great idea but sort of gets lost as the idea takes root. And Bob Ball doesn't know exactly why. But like Bob, I keep coming back to Gardner too. I can't stop thinking about him. He's somebody who comes into my head every once in a while. But in terms of the why, there is a reason why. And when you look at the chaotic last two, three years of professional golf... Gardner is the ultimate shadow zone guy, just like Ball says. Personally, I had heard his name at some point, probably around 2019, when the PGL became at least intriguing to the powers that be. Obviously, by the time he had investors on his side, he was more prominent. He was the CEO of the PGL. But it was easy to forget him once Live Golf emerged and you know the PGL became more of an afterthought. But looking at him now and reading more about him and the PGL and various sources you start to get the sense that not only is he an important figure of this entire saga, but if you want to tell the story of Live Golf and the PGA Tour through the eyes of one man, you might pick Andy Gardner. You know, imagine there was a prestige TV show made about this. Andy Gardner would be a main character. He might be the first character you see, right? An excited businessman having this great idea, gets some momentum, things are moving, and he doesn't know what he's about to get into, what the future holds. That might be scene one of the pilot episode. So, Gardner was already in my head, like I said, and then this tweet kind of 
cemented it. It was the mortar that finished the brick wall and made me want to, as much as possible, learn the coherent, true story of this guy. And that's what we're doing today. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. And a great place to start with Gardner is an article by Max Adler right here at Golf Digest that came out in February of 2020. Now, if memory serves, that is about a month or a little bit less before the pandemic shut everything down. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on COVID, I promise. You'll be happy to know that. But it is one of the interesting what-ifs here that we're going to at least kind of keep track of as we go through the story. What if there had been no pandemic? How would the story of Gardner and the PGL have been different? But anyway, this piece by Adler gives us some background of the man himself, of Gardner. He's British. He is both, you know, a corporate finance attorney. He's a businessman. He spent his whole career in finance. He's very successful. And he seems to have made some powerful friends along the way, including some executives and sponsors of the European tour. A big golfer, obviously, you know, kind of an obsessive golfer, it seems like, like a lot of us. And here in this piece, we get the best look at the origin story of the PGL. It happened 10 years before the piece was written. So we're looking at about 2010. And Max Adler writes, quote, it was 10 years ago, he says, you know, he being Gardner, of course, that over an impassioned three-day spurt, he wrote a 100-page manifesto on what professional golf could be like if it started over. Many times he shared his fan, quote, flight of fancy, and almost as many times was surprised not to be called an idiot. Financial backers of the game, he says, wish there was more certainty around when and where the best players in the world would be squaring off. He started to realize that the barriers to pulling off a Greg Norman couldn't, perhaps weren't as tall as he imagined. End quote. Now, that's kind of a scary thing to think, isn't it? Have there ever been more famous last words in any endeavor than, hey, maybe this won't be so hard? And the other piece of that paragraph that stands out now is the idea of what this could be like, of what pro golf could be like, if you could start over. Now, this is going to seem wildly unrelated, bear with me, but I have a memory of being a college football fan as a kid, 1993, Notre Dame, who I rooted for at the time. I don't anymore, but you know, blame my stepfather. I was a fan at the time. They played Florida State that year in the regular season in what was called the Game of the Century. They beat them in South Bend, Indiana. But later that season, they lost a fluke game to Boston College. So here you had a situation where both teams ended with one loss. They, Because of the way it was at the time, they didn't play each other in their bowl games. They both won their bowl games. And Florida State ended up being declared the national champion. And I remember thinking then... And hell, I'd probably thought it before, but this is my first real memory. How stupid is it that you can't have a playoff with the best teams, just like any other sport? And knowing even then that if you could start over from the top, if you could wipe the slate clean, that's exactly what anybody would do. There's no doubt about it. It's a no-brainer. Well, look, it's now 2024, and despite, you know, small evolutions along the way, a few small progressions, we are saying the same thing this year. You know, how can you keep Georgia out of a playoff? And next year, for the first time, college football is going to have a playoff system that, in my opinion, involves every team that could reasonably have an argument at competing for a national championship. Next year, that's going to happen for the first time. So, you know, you do the math to when I was a kid, 1993, what are we looking at here? That's, you know, 30 years, you know, more than 30 years, really, because they've been going on for a long time. 30 years of people knowing the problem, seeing the obvious answer, but you can't get it done because institutions have inertia. It's like turning a giant ship around. You know, you can only do it slowly. Something's probably going to go wrong along the way. And knowing the answer in this case, in all of these cases, right? Knowing, yeah, of course, a college football playoff is the ideal thing. That's barely relevant. 
There is a vast chasm between what is technically possible and what we know should be done and what can actually get done. And Max Adler writing this article, he knows this and he asked Gardner some very prescient questions. Questions we're still asking today, in fact. For one thing, he says, well, quote, emotional allegiances to sports teams are generally sown over generations, not organized in an instant around golf equipment companies or agents, end quote. And he also asked him about sports washing, about the fact that one of their investors was the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. And then he brings up the idea of, you know, what if the PGA Tour doesn't play ball? What if they're an impediment? What if they get in your way? And Gardner's answers to all these questions are careful, but they're incomplete. They're essentially saying, you know, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Just like he says when Adler brings up how Rory McIlroy has come out against the PGL. You know, Rory at that time had said, you know, he's never going to do it. And again, we get the, you know, don't worry about it. He even quotes Mark Twain, Gardner does. He said, rumors of our death are greatly exaggerated. I would imagine in that moment, Gardner was a little more worried than he let on. I would imagine that's why he broke his media silence and spoke in the first place. This is not a guy who goes around seeking attention from the media. When he speaks, it's because, you know, and we'll see this as the story goes along. When he speaks, it's for a purpose because he wants to generate some momentum or he feels like he might be, and again, this is my opinion here. I, he thinks he might be in a vulnerable sp uh, place. And so all of a sudden you'll see a few interviews with him here and there. So I think that's a fascinating moment in time because as we'll later learn, it's the moment right before Gardner's wave breaks. You know, he doesn't have much longer here in you know February 2020 before he's kind of shunted aside. And there's a big decision that he and the PGL make that are going to hasten that process. But that is getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the 2010s. And now I'm going to turn to the book Live and Let Die. It came out not too long ago. I actually reviewed it on Golf Digest. It's by the writer Alan Shipnuck. I read this book very quickly. I consider it a very, very good history of everything that's happened uh, with Live Golf. Definitely a page turner. And Andy Gardner comes into the action in this book on page 32 when Shipnuck is describing, you know, what's happening in those early years. So we go back to 2010. Gardner writes this manifesto in three days, allegedly. But it's not until 2013 that he starts seriously talking to anyone. And here's what he tells Shipnuck, quote, Funny enough, one of the first conversations I ever had was with Rory. I was explaining the concept, and at the time, he was of the view that actually this is what golf needs. That was some time ago. You know, he's entitled to change his opinion. But had Rory said to me, Andy, that's rubbish, I would have probably stopped. But on we went, end quote. As a brief aside, it's interesting if you take him at his word there, how all of this could have been stopped in its tracks. And we talked about historical what-ifs. What if Rory had said, no, nah, that's a terrible idea. There's a million reasons it can't work. Get out of my face. I don't know who you are. Maybe it stops Gardner. Maybe also the Saudis never get involved in golf because Gardner is going to be the engine of that too. Very interesting to trace out those hypotheticals, even if, of course, it's you know all academic now. So Gardner, when he wrote up his proposal on yellow legal pads back in 2010, he was actually following the model of F1 racing, which in the 1980s had had some of the same problems the tour would have 40 years later. For example, they didn't know which drivers would be at which races. There were you know, TV presentation issues, track issues. And in 1981, this agreement called the Concord Agreement basically unified F1, unified the sport, made sure all the big teams and drivers were at every race, and laid the foundation for the sport to grow into what it is today, which was successful even before the Netflix documentary Drive to Survive, and now 
of course, is like a global phenomenon at this point. And there's another interesting parallel there. IndyCar, which is America's version of open wheel racing, you know, RF1, was very popular at a certain point in the 70s. And it had a schism, right? It went the other way. F1 was unifying. IndyCar broke into two different leagues. You know, and kind of like, you know, golf is having its schism now. And IndyCar just plummeted to the point that I've said this before. You know, can you name the last winner of the Indy 500? Can you name anyone in the last five years who's won that race, which is their biggest race? Right? And maybe you can, and congratulations. But I think most sports fans, casual ones, probably can't. And it's a mark of how far it's fallen. And of course, you can trace that by TV numbers and revenue and all that, too. So it's interesting how car racing seems to keep having these interesting, you know, if not parallels, at least interesting comparison points with golf. So Gardner writes up his ideas. And at this point, we should take a moment to outline exactly what those ideas are. Bob Ball had it mostly right. You know, some of this is going to be very familiar from what we've seen in Live Golf, but a few of the details are a little bit different. So Gardner did want 18 54-hole tournaments. Shotgun starts the first two rounds. You know, 10 to 12 of them are going to be in the U.S. The rest are going to be across the globe. And by the way, the international ones, you know, he imagined them being played under floodlights at night. That way you wouldn't be abandoning primetime U.S. viewers. They could still turn in. And this would all be with 12 teams of four players. So 48 total players competing both for individual and, yes, team prizes. And one interesting detail in his vision, the captain would decide before each round which two player scores would count for the team that day. So that I think that has been kind of lost, but that was one little wrinkle he had at some point. And he wanted all these teams to be franchises that could be sold to, you know, whoever, whoever wanted to be a team owner. His back of the napkin math, you know, you hear figures like $10 billion valuation for the league as a whole, $500 million price tag for each franchise. And he even has this idea of listing the PGL on NASDAQ so, you know, fans could invest in it, things like that. And another key element is that players would have to play all 18 events. That was kind of a sticking point for him right from the beginning. They'd have to commit to them all. So obviously you see the key principle here. The one thing underlying all these ideas is that you get the best players in the world all in one place reliably every single time. And what Shipnuck writes in his book is that Jay Monahan was actually aware of this by 2017, earlier than a lot of people thought, earlier than I would have thought. And also in 2017, Gardner has his first in-person meeting with Keith Pelley, CEO of the European Tour, who, if you follow the news, he actually just announced that he's quitting. He's going back to Canada. He's going to work with the Maple Leaf organization. So this is happening in 2017. 2018 comes. Gardner now has this 116-page prospectus. By 2019, he's got the name Premier Golf League, PGL. And around then, he started working with a man named Colin Neville. You know, he worked with a private equity company in New York called The Rain Group. And his name also might be familiar to you. He is a big-time dealmaker in pro sports. He's been involved in things like the sale of Chelsea and Man United in English soccer. And recently in golf, he was present at the famous players-only meeting in the summer of 2022 when the best players on the PGA Tour got together and kind of mapped out their vision of how the tour was going to look going forward. And then a year later, last July, he was announced as an advisor to tour players as these negotiations with the PIF went forward. So what you see with him, and you're going to see with a lot of people who Gardner was involved with early, is that they stay major players in some way. While Gardner, he kind of fades from view a little bit, because that's where this is all going. But it is remarkable 
the inroads Gardner was able to make, the people he connected with, how his ideas, you know, seemed to take wings. So Neville becomes the director of the PGL. And of course, one of the big ideas is that the players are going to have equity in this league, about 50% or so to voting members. So all these guys start making waves. And one of Shipnuck's sources hits on a key point. He says, quote, they were not Googleable. You know, talking about the PGL guys, that underscores the long shot nature of this and how Gardner is kind of coming out of nowhere. The guy says, you know, quote, in the background check, they came back as ghosts. Nothing they had done in their professional lives suggested they could pull this off, but they were very smart and very passionate. End quote. Remember that word passionate because it's going to, it's going to get Gardner and, you know, the people he works with, but especially Gardner, it's going to get him pretty far for a guy who, again, is kind of a dark horse here. And the rain group decides with Neville, they say, okay, we're going to put $500 million into this thing, you know, in, in exchange for a huge equity stake, one that will grow almost to 50% in theory, you know, if certain benchmarks are hit. And the big benchmark, of course, is players. This is what they don't have. So Gardner goes to Augusta 2019, where he meets with players, agents, people like Keith Pelly again. And at this time, another interested party is emerging, and those are the Saudis. And at this 2019 Masters, the governor of the PIF, Yasir al-Rumayan, pardon any mispronunciations here, I'm doing my best, but obviously, you know, Yasser is a very prominent figure in golf now. He was there, and he was meeting people like Nick Faldo, Jack Nicholas. And, you know, he and the PIF were very much interested in investing in the PGL. In fact, they had just launched the Saudi International European Tour event a couple months earlier. So these guys do come on board and obviously they bring with them a kind of wealth that is so vast, it's not really comparable to anything else we're talking about. You know, it's just leagues different than anyone else in the game. And another key difference is that unlike everyone else, the Saudis aren't necessarily hung up on an immediate financial return of investment. Obviously, that becomes, you know, once once we get to, you know, once the minor players clear the stage and it's, P, you know, PIF versus PGA Tour, that is the X factor that trumps all other X factors. They're willing to offer far more than anyone else, and they don't need to recoup it, at least not right away, and at least not in the traditional fiscal sense. And that makes them a powerhouse. So when they sign, this is a big deal. But still, the PGA Tour had a lot to offer. You know, they're not going to roll over. They've got a lot of money to go around. And players at this point, understandably, were pretty cynical about the possibility of this PGL succeeding. You know, they know the Tour isn't going to give them releases for it, first of all. Already it's clear that the Tour is going to be against this. That's no secret. In fact, Gardner, at least as of last year, he had never been able to get a meeting with Jay Monahan, not even a sit-down. And the PGA Tour still butters the bread of these players. So you can imagine it's hard for them to see how this thing is going to work. And there's this outright reluctance to go out on a limb and commit to anything. You know, they may nod their head and say, oh, interesting idea, interesting idea. But they're certainly not going to sign anything. Uh, and until they do, the PGL is a little bit stuck. So Gardner and Neville quickly realize they need somebody who is a sort of catalyst, a huge name. And a ship duck writes... They turn their attention right to a guy who they know has an enormous profile, who they suspect is fed up with the PGA Tour in some ways, and maybe someone who might even need big amounts of money, right? That would be convenient. And that, of course, is Phil Mickelson. Gardner plays with Phil at the Pro-Am at the Saudi International in January 2020, along with Neville. 
And again, forgive the pronunciation, but Majid Al Saroor, the CEO of Golf Saudi. And afterward, Mickelson says, quote, it was an informative day. Doesn't give up much else. But Garner's main point to him was the PGA Tour is holding you back. You know, we're at a point of revolution here. You should be a free agent. You should be making so much more than you are right now. And throughout this, there's this funny, I don't know if the word is a duality or a funny contrast or a, a tug and pull or something in the way Gardner looks at the PGA Tour and the way he talks about them. Because early on, it seems like he knows they're going to be an enemy. Well, of course, everybody would know that, right? And even in his prospectus, he'll write something like, quote, given that the PGA Tour's principal mission is to promote the common interests of touring golf professionals by protecting the integrity of the game and helping to grow the reach of the game in the U.S. and around the world, it should regard the PGL as being compatible with, not contrary to, its mission. End quote. While a few lines earlier, he would say something like, quote, history tends to repeat itself, and the leading players in the world might argue it is time for a new body to help them reach their full commercial potential and to precipitate golf's most natural next evolutionary step, end quote. So, you know, you get both sides here, right? The, hey, you know, we're friends, we can work together, that kind of message. And then you get, step aside, grandpa, this is the future, get out of the way or get run over. And of course, when he has the chance to talk to Phil, he's telling him, you know, think of the money you can make. Think of how they're holding you back. So at this point, talking about 2020, it is enough on Monaghan's radar that he sends a note to the players saying, basically, if the PGL ever gets its act together, be warned, it's us or it's them. You can't do both. And Gardner starts considering legal challenges. He and his people show up at Riviera, including Yasser al-Rumayan and Majid al-Saror, who were there as silent partners. And at this point, they are ready to commit up to $500 million, the Saudis. And pretty soon after this meeting, the offers start rolling in. They offer $200 million to Tiger Woods, $50 million to Phil, $50 million to Rory, to Brooks Kepka, to Spieth, to Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas to Ricky Fowler those eight players they envisioned as their team captains but they kept the offers coming it didn't stop there a little bit lower amounts but you know they wanted players like Justin Rose he he was offered 25 million Henrik Stenson Jason Day Adam Scott I think made you know 15 million was his offer Hideki Matsuyama so you can see they're also covering the globe here right Sweden Australia Japan America and the original plan was that the purse of each of their tournaments was going to be about $10 million. Now, some investors in the PGL didn't like that. They thought it was too low. And what they wanted was lower signing bonuses for these other guys. So the tournament purses could be higher because otherwise, you know, how are you going to get after, after your first guys, how are you going to get the 20th ranked player in the world who has no signing bonus and is looking at the tournament purses and thinking, you know, why am I doing this again? How is this different? So you see that unlike what comes later with Live Golf, we're still here in the realm of push and pull based on spending a lot of money, yes, but making sure we can make that money back. You know, this is not quite the Wild West that would come later. But there was momentum. And one of Shipnuck's PGL sources, you know, again, you take this however you want, but of that specific period of time, the source said, quote, we were very, very close to launching this. And I say that even knowing how greedy the players are and how slimy the agents can be 
and that they might come back asking for more, as they always do. It honestly felt like we were days away, end quote. The next big meetings were set for the week of the Players' Championship, and we all know what happened that week in 2020. A little virus, you may remember, swept the world and everything stopped, including the PGL's momentum. Again, remember our hypothetical. Where would this have been? Where would the PGL be today if not for the pandemic? Maybe in the same place. You know, don't read into this that I'm implying something here that, oh, they would have definitely succeeded. It's always easy for the people or groups that come up a little short in the end to say, well, you know, if this one piece of bad luck had been different, everything would be different. You know, that could be wishful thinking. All I'm saying is you can certainly map your way. It doesn't take much imagination to seeing how it really, really could have been different if they didn't have this giant pandemic that just stopped things in its tracks. At the same time, and Shipnuck points this out, COVID also put a major squeeze on the European tour financially. They were always kind of living paycheck to paycheck, you know, metaphorically speaking. And all of a sudden their purses in late 2020 when they come back are about a million dollars. They're borrowing money. And Gardner and the PGL are thinking, you know, maybe these guys are ripe for a partnership. And so the negotiations get going. Neville at this point is leading talks. And that makes a lot of people pay attention because Rain, his company, is a major player. Cannot ignore these guys. By June that summer, still in 2020 here, another proposal goes out from the PGL. Now tournament purses are going to be up to $20 million, $45 million for the finale. Tiger's offer goes down. Phil's goes up. That seems to have been a point of contention per Shipnuck. The you know $50 million offers to the other team captains goes down to about $30 million, but half of that is now up front. And also they're going to get team equity. And these guys save their biggest offer for the European tour. $100 million, they get 15% of European tour productions, and the 18 PGL tournaments would be an integral part of that tour's calendar. And Pelly gives an interesting quote to Shipnuck. He says, quote, if Rain Capital and before that Andy Gardner said it to me once, they said it to me a hundred times. The PGA Tour can't do anything to stop us. Their view was that the PGA Tour was too reliant on what they called an old-fashioned, not-for-profit model and that they had little room to maneuver, end quote. And you have to wonder, you know, this is all speculation, I should say that, but you have to wonder if there's a little undue arrogance there that maybe cost them in the end. Because what they're doing with this offer, they're not just instigating a revolution. What they're doing is handing the European tour leverage, aren't they? This offer is very enticing, but it also lets the European tour say, well, PGA tour, what do you got? And what I'm about to say will probably be the most controversial opinion in this podcast because I am very well aware that there's an undercurrent of belief that the PGA Tour and Jay Monahan specifically have mismanaged, bungled everything in terms of live golf. And looking back, you know, you can easily say, yeah, sure, maybe they should have just taken the Saudi money earlier. But I look at it a little bit differently, which is that over the past couple of years, facing down this incredible war chest that the PIF has at its disposal, again, it's the kind of money that should just bludgeon any competitor into dust, it strikes me that there is a counter-narrative that the PGA Tour has done pretty well, surviving as long as they have. Maybe the original decision to fight was ill-advised. Maybe there was an end-around somewhere that they could have done. But once they fought, to me it's a little like the U.S. Civil War, almost, where 
okay, probably it was inevitable that the North was going to win in the end, you know, superior manpower and industry and all that. But wow, the South really dragged it out. You know, they really made them hurt in the process. Again, just my opinion. The end result, well, okay, we don't know the end result yet, but with the merger, the tour did have to bend the knee, at least in some way. Maybe that result was always going to be the same, but I actually think through the process of this, the PGA Tour punched above its weight in a lot of specific ways. And this is the start of it here, because Monaghan hears about this offer between the PGL and the European Tour, and he makes the counteroffer of, join us. But implicit, or according to Paul McGinley, explicit in this offer, is a threat that if you go with these guys, if you go with the PGL, we're going to destroy you. We're going to take the sponsors. We'll make sure your players abandon your big events by increasing our purses. You know, and one source from the PGL uh, in Shipnuck's book, his quote is, he may as well have parked tanks outside Keith Pelly's office. So what Monaghan is doing is saying, you're going to take a big leap if you go with these guys. Are you sure? Because if you do it, we're going to, we're going to, you know, bring the pain on you. We're going to punish you. So you better make sure before you do it, that this thing is viable, that you're really, really confident that it's going to work. And Monaghan succeeds. What he does is successful. Phil Mickelson apparently actually at one point called Pelly to encourage him to go with the PGL. But the fact that they hadn't yet signed a single player scared the European tour. It scared Pelly. Pelly now claims he asked for more money from Rain Capital, but they didn't get it. Although some people from the PGL told Shipnuck that that wasn't true. Or in their words, it was absolute effing bullshit, right? But on the other side, the European tour guys are saying, you know, Rain and Andy Gardner want to turn a profit too quickly, and they're not bold enough. They're not putting enough money on the table. Now, whether you think, you know, Rain and Gardner are right, or you think the European tour is right, what's clear is that we're living in a world where getting a return on investment matters. Sounds like the most obvious thing in the world to say, except that world is about to go away. Now, as we all know, in the end, the European tour goes with the PGA tour. Safer, of course. And the deal they signed looks an awful lot like what the PGL had proposed originally to the European tour. $100 million for a 15% stake of European tour productions. And with that, in November 2021, the Strategic Alliance, as we know it today, was born. And there's something funny here. I mean, it's just worth pointing out that, you know, if Andy Gardner, is, as that original tweet said, is the most pissed off guy in golf, and I don't know that he is, but if he is, part of that's got to be that all his ideas gets, even this idea of what we're going to offer the European tour, the PGA tour just says, well, how about we do it instead? And, and you know, done deal, they sign. So there's always that sense of like, there is a visionary person here and the vision is constantly getting stolen. It's like that wire scene where they, you know, they're sitting on the bench talking about, wow, the guy who invented the chicken nugget, he must be rich right now. And I think it's, you know, D'Angelo says he's not rich. You know, he's in a basement somewhere making chicken nuggets. They stole his idea. This is kind of like what's happening here. And if that feels like a big moment, the strategic alliance, an even bigger one happened shortly after, which is that the Saudis decide, you know, Andy Gardner is not the guy who can deliver them professional golf. And the PGL isn't the group to do it. And they walk away. So Gardner in 2021 starts what Shipnuck in his book calls a media blitz. He says things like, quote, we've never been the enemy. I can understand why we've been perceived as such, but we'd love to be friends, end quote. Obviously, you know, that's not going to fly at this point. That ship has sailed. There are interviews where he quotes Thomas Jefferson, you know, with his point being, come on, the pursuit of happiness, part of that is working where you want. 
And before we talk about what comes next, this is the point of the story for me where Gardner goes from somebody who is a major player with this kind of incredible dark horse story. You know, where does this guy come from? How is he pulling this off? He's got the goods to somebody who has lost his steam irrevocably and everybody kind of knows it. The dual blow of losing the Saudis, you know, and the formation of this strategic alliance. That's not the end of Andy Gardner's ideas. We'll see that much, but it's the end of Andy Gardner. Again, just my view, but it reminds me of, you know, we see this often in U.S. political campaigns, I think. I don't know if you remember Howard Dean. There was one election. It was the, you know, the John Kerry election. I can't remember what year that was. 2004, I think. But anyway, he seemed to have the world, you know, by the scruff of his collar. The year he ran for president, you know, he had all the momentum. Then he lost one of the first primaries and he did that awkward, I'm going to try here. Yow! Right? Whatever that was. You remember in that speech? Forgive that bad impression. But almost immediately, the world seemed to understand this guy's done. That was it. He had his high watermark. He doesn't come back from this. And it happened, you know, literally overnight. You know, Gardner got farther, you know, for doing this analogy, he probably got farther than, than Howard Dean did. So maybe a better comparison is Bernie Sanders. You know, remember last time against Joe Biden, he won a couple early primaries. Again, seemed to have all this momentum. Then Super Tuesday comes. You know, Pete Buttigieg dropped out, lends his support to Biden. Biden crushes it on Super Tuesday, and reality comes crashing down. The next day, Bernie Sanders isn't a viable candidate anymore, and you wonder, you know, if he ever was. But that shift in perception happens quickly. And this is how it's shaping up for Andy Gardner at this point. You know, brilliant guy. Maybe, honestly, he never had a chance, right, doing it the way he was doing. Maybe the really remarkable thing about his story it's not that he lost, but that he got so far on the strength of a great idea, some connections, and just his general hootspot, his passion. But I think this is the moment when the air comes out of the balloon. Gardner sends a note to Rory McIlroy in his capacity as chairman of the, you know, the Tours Player Advisory Council. Gardner, you know, proposes that the PGL becomes part of the PGA Tour. Outlines the deal. Rory is at least theoretically interested. But Monaghan is not. He has completely shut this guy out. By now, you've got the player impact program going in full swing. You know, signature events, that's kind of in the works. And while Gardner is pressing and people like Rory are taking him seriously, Monaghan brings in consultants who are saying, this is not financially sound, this model. And we have to say, they may have been right. Okay, we talk about this idea, this, you know, we give this idea, we kind of put it on a pedestal, this idea. Well, the idea is happening now with Live Golf, and we've seen what's happened. So far, it's not financially sound. You know, that part of the story at this at this juncture almost seems irrelevant, but it is worth saying it at least resembles Gardner's original idea. It's not sweeping the world. It's not blowing up in popularity, at least not yet. So Gardner, because he's, you know, Monaghan has shut the door, Gardner never really gets a chance to speak to anyone in power. He never gets to speak to the PGA Tour players. And some of the players resent that, by the way. You know, James Hahn says to Shipnuck, is this tour run by the players or not? And here's what Shipnuck wrote, and I think it's worth quoting him somewhat at length here. Quote, But Monaghan's hardball tactics worked. The PGL was dead in the water. Gardner, a romantic who wanted to improve the game, but was outfoxed by more skilled corporate operatives, would disappear from public view. The PGL's demise offered a stark lesson. However appealing the product may or may not be, the top PGA Tour players would not be seduced into joining a breakaway league 
with only the promise of future riches. To be lured from their gilded cages, they and their rapacious agents would need barrels full of upfront money. End quote. And we all know who has those barrels, right? And that story is still being written. Now, as for Gardner, we saw that Neville, his partner, works closely now with PGA Tour players. Jed Moore, who is involved with his Performance 54 consulting group that allied with Gardner early to push the PGL. We didn't really mention him, but I'm mentioning him now because he, you know, he goes to the Saudis. He goes to live golf. Same with Gary Davidson, who had been the executive director of Performance 54. And the Saudis actually bought a majority interest in Performance 54. Shipnuck writes that a man named Richard Marsh, who had been one of Gardner's best friends, he went in with this group, you know, P54, and, you know, he and Gardner haven't spoken since 2021. Shipnuck writes, quote, among the Shakespearean themes of this saga are betrayal, end quote. And one way to look at this is that it's Gardner who is routinely the guy getting betrayed. And his idea, of course, is adopted in some of its forms by the new player in town, the player with the barrels full of money. Gardner's idea moves forward. Gardner does not. And I don't know exactly why, right? Why isn't Gardner just a live golf guy now? Dylan DeChair at Golf.com wrote about Gardner in 2022 under the headline, Live Golf's format was his idea. Now he wants to save the PGA Tour. And the first line in that story is, Andy Gardner insists he isn't jealous. This was written around the launch of Live Golf, and Gardner was still talking in that story like launching the PGL was a realistic outcome. And in this interview with the chair, he was basically proposing that the PGL could be incorporated into the PGA Tour. It could be owned by the players. You know, lots of equity for them, for the Corn Ferry Tour, for the DP World Tour. And he probably saw opportunity there, as in, you know, here comes Liv, you know, isn't this a good time for the tour to co-opt their big idea? But there's, again, not much evidence that he ever got an audience. Because the point, I think, for the tour is that they were never really scared of the format. You know, even when Liv launched, that's not their fear. Their fear is the money, the Saudi money. And, you know, through the initial signings of Liv Golf and the signing of John Rahm recently, clearly they were right to be afraid. But they weren't scared of the team format or the shotgun start, you know, the 54-hole event. Those things still haven't caught on. And they knew that co-opting that format wasn't really going to amount to a hill of beans in terms of stopping Liv. And it seems like Gardner was stuck in that, right? He This was always his baby, this idea. And it still seems like he was operating from the mindset of, well, if you take the idea, maybe you can stop Liv Galt. But the idea wasn't the problem. The problem was the money. Where is Gardner now? Well, as far as I can tell... That summer 2022 media run you know, resulted in a few pieces being written. And there hasn't been much since. Even the PGL's website, you know, under the media heading, the articles they link are, are late 2021 at best. Some of them right now look like artifacts. There's one Scotsman headline saying, you know, the PGL plans to launch in January 2023. It's almost like you're looking at this museum of PGL optimism. The last time the PGL account tweeted was in June of 2022. And one of the last tweets they did was someone saying, you know, someone else saying, the PGA Tour needs to evolve. And the PGL quote tweeted that saying, quote, we're here whenever they want to talk, end quote. But the answer, of course, to that is they never wanted to talk. 
At this point today, we have the merger, the ongoing negotiations, VC money may be coming to the picture. It is very hard, to say the least, to imagine where the PGL fits in there. And I think with Gardner, what we can say about him now, and by the way, I didn't talk to him for this. Local knowledge kind of functions like a history podcast. And this is very recent history, but it's the same idea. You know, Gardner, if we did talk to him, might have some perspective on what's happening now. But as far as I can tell, this particular facet of the ongoing live PGA Tour story came to its end in, at the latest, the summer of 2022. So what we can say about Gardner now is that for a guy who's basically unaffiliated, he had this incredible surge, this rise, based on, again, his ability to connect with people and all that, but more than anything on his passion for this idea of team golf, for what golf could be. And that idea is alive. And I don't know if I believe in it. I don't know if many people do yet, but I know Gardner did. And he's almost this Gatsby-esque figure to me now where, yes, he fell eventually. This was always going to be a Hail Mary and it didn't work out for him specifically. But wow, look how far he got. Look how close he got. You know, we have powerful people on all sides of the story, really, you know, connected, powerful people. But I think Gardner might be the most remarkable of them all because he didn't really have much power. But he got everyone's attention, and he did change the sport for better or worse. You know, by the way, I want to say on that note, that Gatsby note, this is the most American story I've ever heard, this, this Gardner story, and the guy's not even American. But in terms of changing the sport and leaving his mark, I wonder if there's comfort in that for him, or I wonder if he's bitter, or I wonder if he's still optimistic, or what? I don't know. But I can't help but admire him from afar, and whatever else happens in professional golf especially in the next year, his name, I think, deserves to be remembered. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried, with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music for today's episode was called Lemon and Melon by Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two other podcasts for you to check out. One is called The Loop that comes out every week. We also have a new podcast, or relatively new, called Golf IQ with Luke Curdenie, and that's all about golf instruction. You can sign up for both of those and subscribe as well. Thanks very much. Have a great day.